Hi guys, my name's, um, what is my name? I can't remember my name. <laughs> Sorry, I can't remember my name or where I'm from or anything about myself, but I still know how to host a podcast, thank God. Today we're talking about the Born Identity. A lot of people were writing in saying they wanted to hear about uh, Contagion, and so we are going to do Contagion on a different episode. That will be coming up, uh, but this is our first remote quarantined episode, but I'm very excited about it. It was so much fun to record, and this movie is awesome. Born Identity rules. I've always loved it, so let's get right into it, and I will see you later. My name is David Frothenberg. That can't be... Uh, it's No, I know what it is. It's Charles McClintock. Ugh. Bad science. Did the movie get it right? Bad science. Or will we Hi everybody, welcome to Bad Science. I'm Ethan Edinburgh. Today we are talking about the born identity in the first ever Bad Science recording from my apartment. So that's exciting and I guess somewhat frightening also. To help me get into all of that, I have two very wonderful guests. First of all, uh, you might remember him from, uh, what episode was it, Paul, we did? Like a, God, a King Godzilla. Kong episode? It was Godzilla. Oh, Godzilla, that's yeah. right. We did the Godzilla episode. He's a good friend of mine. He's an actor, writer, and improviser, Paul Getz. Hello, hello. Good to be back. Sort of back. Oh no! Am I am I screwing what, this I'm up? Out? Well, I mean a little bit. You're chopped. You're a little chopped. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, I feel like you're hearing me a little bit delayed, but we are going to power through and deal with it. Okay. Joining us and hopefully helping us through this tremendous time that we're all living in is a professor of neuroscience at BU. It's Dr. Steve Ramirez. Hi, thank you for having me. Yes, thank you for digitally joining us, and I hope this is not driving you up the wall. No, not at all. I am only pacing up and down my bedroom right now, so can't be too bad. <laughs> oh, okay, good. So maybe we can actually blame you for the lag because you're moving so much, so the satellites are having a hard time like configuring your location. Exactly. Well, I am I am pacing also, so we can share the blame. <laughs> oh, perfect. Okay, so anyway, we're talking about The Born Identity today, which uh, came out in 2002, and I was uh, already just off of that shocked that it was 18 years ago that this movie came out because I remember when it came out. And before we dive into it, there's a few things here I wanted to mention specifically to Dr. Steve because I was looking stuff up about you and there's just some fascinating articles. Since we are talking about memory today, our protagonist loses his memory. You famously implanted false memories into mice. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So we had a handful of experiments where we were able to either artificially reactivate memories in mice uh, or actually implant false memories in mice as well. Okay, now, so that people don't think that you are some sort of evil sorcerer for the rest of this podcast, <laughs> Can you explain why you were doing that or what the memories were maybe? Yeah, yeah. So a large reason why we want to be able to artificially reactivate memories is to really figure out two things. It's like, what does this tell us about how memory works? And what does this tell us about how the brain works or how the brain can work really? So you can imagine cases where you can reactivate positive memories, let's say, uh, in an animal that we think is modeling certain symptoms of depression. Or you could imagine being able to really turn the volume down on the emotional oomph of, let's say, a negative memory in an animal that we think is modeling things like PTSD and anxiety. So at the end of the day, it's really twofold. It's to try to figure out how does this remarkable thing that we call memory actually work? And then can we hijack it even to try to give it some kind of therapeutic purpose? Because we normally don't think of memory as a kind of drug, but in this case, if we can artificially leverage it, maybe we can push it into that kind of therapy-like territory. Wow, that's fascinating. And so, and you were able to have some modicum of success, right? I mean, you were able to, I don't know, make their 
do do mice have depression? I feel like I'm going crazy just talking about this. <laughs> um, but you were able to kind of alleviate their their stress or or remind them of a better time where they were meeting female mice. Yeah. So basically, with um, the idea of implanting a false memory, uh, it's twofold. So we can get an animal, for instance, to be scared of an environment where nothing bad actually happened there, um, or the opposite. We can get an animal to actually really like an environment that it's in, even though something good didn't happen there. Hmm. Okay. You think this can be replicated on humans? Like, why can we not do this now? Because I'm scared of stuff all the time and would love to avoid that. Yeah. So we think maybe down the line in a sense, because you know the way that we do this, it's really invasive and it requires a brain surgery and genetically engineering brain cells to do all sorts of things. And we're not going to be doing that in humans anytime soon. And to an extent, we don't really have to, right? Like if I want to reactivate a memory in you, I don't have to go in and start engineering your brain to do all sorts of fun stuff. I could just ask you, like, what'd you do last night? And there you go. Like that memory now comes out of dormancy and it comes back online and it's now active. So I think that what we're doing in animals at the very least, I hope can be a kind of blueprint for what we may be able to do in humans one day, and ideally in as non-invasive of a manner as possible. Wow, okay, yeah, I hope you're right. Also, I wanted to just ask before, because I have tons of memory questions, I'm fascinated by memory, as listeners of the podcast may know, but because of what's going on right now, I thought I should bring up the fact that everyone's talking about the virus, sickness is just on everyone's minds right now, on the TVs, on their phones, and I know that the brain is incredibly powerful in ways that we barely understand. And so do you fear people thinking that they're sick, which can turn into actual sickness? Um, I think, you know, there is this kind of, you can stress yourself out too much, of course, and you can really kind of spiral down this almost anxiety rabbit hole that can exist for sure. So I have no doubt that, you know, with everything with the virus going on right now, this is practically on the entire world's mind right now. And maybe it depends on the kind of person too, and everybody is different. Like you could imagine that if you're already susceptible to the effects of stress or anxiety, then everything happening in the world right now absolutely does not help. Uh, but you don't want the opposite too, where you're so you know free going and stuff that you just kind of ignore what's happening in the world too. So I think that a little bit of stress and anxiety tends to be a good thing because it keeps us on edge and it helps us from actually making bad decisions. And you know I have no doubt at the very least with what's happening right now in the world that this is really making a permanent stamp on people's brains, right? I mean, you have you have the whole world paying attention to one thing and that rarely happens. Yeah. Are we past the point of handshaking? Do you guys think that that's over now? For the foreseeable future, maybe. I would really be more concerned about losing the high five. Personally, I'm just more of a high five guy. <laughs> but uh, That's rare. People don't really high five, you know, yeah. most of the time in real life. People don't like it. Yeah, People don't like that I'm a high five guy, but... It's you know, fun. I, I like high fives. It's kind of interesting because right now, I mean, like, you know, we'll, we'll be going through this for a while. And this is something that I told my lab where it's like, you know, we already shut down and stuff and everyone's at home and trying to be safe and have good practices and so on. But I told them, like, the entire world is basically... Usually the world asks you to, you know, be a good Samaritan, contribute to some cause, pay for this, go out to the world and do something. And the whole world right now is just asking us like, look, like just do nothing, like just stay home and literally do nothing. And it's interesting right. to see how many people actually have a hard time doing nothing. And I mean, um, I'm one of them when it comes to getting a little bit like antsy with like actually needing to get stuff done. But, you know, hopefully, hopefully it's something that with, um, I mean, since we're talking about neuroscience and science in general, hopefully that this is one of those things that the miracle that is science in and of itself and the people behind it can really continue to you know, push forward for a cure or a vaccine. 
Yeah, I'm definitely relying on people like you to figure this out and solve this. And I'm trying to stay productive and, and work. It feels like almost a return to older times in in hopefully a good way where we can concentrate on our home life and I don't know what people do, garden, I guess, play chess. Oh, yeah. I mean, even, you know, walking around, like just being on my balcony and seeing people walk by, people are waving more and being a little bit more friendly. And like, even though that there is this blanket of tension, for sure, you could tell that there is a little bit of a withdrawal going on in terms of actually socializing and actually being able to have some kind of face to face interaction. And I mean, the high five is a great example. You know, I was I was just talking with my partner about like, you know, what if we lose the handshake? Like, that's you know, the, the elbow bump mm. is going to come in, like that's going to be the new handshake. And it's going to be really interesting to see how many of these uh, different kind of norms we end up adopting long term as well. It's it's funny to think that normally you would think of someone not greeting you with a hearty handshake as being uh, unkind. But now it's an ultimate kindness to have someone stay away from you. Uh, (laughs) It's a really nice thing. Doing the right thing. I also really enjoy how much of a performance hand washing is now. I don't know how soon I'll be in another public bathroom, (laughs) but the last time I was, I was, it was made very apparent that everyone was washing their hands under hot water for 20 seconds or more. Oh yeah. If you're you're one of those people that goes into the bathroom (laughs) and washes your hand for five seconds or less, you're just going to get the stink guy from everybody there because you're that guy. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's really funny it's not just about like people who don't wash their hands are treated as criminals and like the police need to be called but if you wash your hands for like five ten seconds then it's like wow what an asshole i can't believe him yeah Mm -hmm. exactly (laughs) there's no way that water got hot there's no way (laughs) i checked it yeah um okay so let's let's hop into the movie for a second and we'll we'll kind of hop back just because that's how my brain works which maybe you can explain to me steve i like to mix things up but the the movie starts if in case you haven't seen it with Matt Damon in the water. He's found by a boat and he doesn't remember anything about himself. And there was a a few things right off the top. Like he has these bullet holes in his back. And I I specifically, because I know Paul really well wanted your thoughts if you even noticed Mm -hmm. that, but like the bullet holes look like a perfect circle in his back. Did anyone see that but me? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I was wondering, it looked like the bullets really smashed flat against his back muscles like immediately like they got in and then they stopped and i was wondering how often that happens and specifically when it comes to that scene i i wrote down the opening sequence with the surgeon sailor was awesome i was like you never get this you never get oh okay immediately the first guy we see knows just what to do and it's surgery you you just get so much information right away i was thrilled i was thrilled by that yeah scene. it's a fun intro steve you've done surgery i think mostly brain surgery but did uh did that look kosher to you do you approve of his methods yeah i mean it's, it's convenient that you know the person that's on the boat knows exactly what to do to get to, to perform this surgery and stuff because usually you know if this was real life and somebody washes on a washes up on a boat like that you're like well crap like i have no idea what to do right now like other than you know yeah. call the doctors but um but yeah no it was interesting to see the pattern of bullets for sure and you know in terms of memory like it's interesting to really think of like what were the what was the kind of damage that happened to the brain whether it was you know inhaling too much water while being underwater or the trauma of actually being shot at and losing consciousness for instance and like 
really trying to tease out which is the one that produced Amnesia, or maybe it was just a combination of both in this case, and why Matt Damon can't remember throughout the movie. Yeah, does, is that a? Is, I mean, that's like the big question of the movie, I guess. Like, is this a likely scenario, or even if it's <laughs> unlikely, or if it's rare, is that just a common thing that could happen where you're either because you're shot in a certain part? I thought maybe it had to do with like his spine, or yeah, being unconscious in the water, losing consciousness. Can you lose? who you are, but remember how to do everything in life? Yeah, so that's, that's I think, in my opinion, the money question of this entire movie. Um, and I use this in a class uh, that combines neuroscience and Hollywood that I teach to illustrate this exact point where uh, there's two parts here. Um, with regards to what it takes to produce amnesia, sure, like if, you, if you're underwater and your brain is deprived of oxygen, I mean, in just a few short minutes, you're gonna, your brain cells are going to start dying. And then after maybe like a dozen or so minutes, then you're in a really deep, deep unconscious state. So that absolutely can produce brain trauma. It can produce um, a multitude of different kinds of amnesia for sure. Now, with regards to waking up and saying, okay, I, I, there's a great scene in the movie where he's at a diner and he's just like, you know, I walk in here and uh, I've memorized already every single uh, car plate. I know how much the how much the guy sitting at the bar weighs. I know that the bartender is a lefty, and I I can hold a gun and I know how long I can run for a mile without losing my breath. But then how come I don't know who I am? And that I think there is a lot of basis and truth to that because we do have like what we call different memory systems, quote unquote, in the brain. And then the one that he's missing is our so-called episodic memory system, which is basically our ability to recall episodes or experiences of our past, but that that can be somewhat different from our motor memory system which can be you know why we know how to play the piano why we can walk and run why he knows how to shoot a gun and why he knows how to do everything that like the mixed martial arts that he knows how to do so that i think the movie actually gets right where he he doesn't remember who he is because he has amnesia of the episodes his personally experienced episodes of his past but his motor memories and his motor functions and everything that he's learned like shooting a gun and being able to do one-on-one -on -one combat remains intact because the different parts of his brain that enable those motor outputs have remained undamaged. Are those different physical parts of the brain that are being effective? Like is one piece of the brain, uh, you know, the one in charge of episodic memory? I do want to make the disclaimer that you know, the brain, it's not like a waffle where this square is memory, this square is motor, this square is consciousness, this square is breathing. Uh, it's more of spaghetti, like everything is intertwined in the brain. And basically, like, every corner of the brain talks to every other corner of the brain for all intents and purposes. But it's like, broadly speaking, yes, in this case, the, the parts of the brain that we think enable our, our capacity to recall our, our past, for instance, we think are largely different than the parts of the brain that we think enable our motor functions. Again, like being able to do mixed martial arts and shoot a gun and so on. So in this case, like you could imagine that damage to one part of the brain, you can definitely get cases of amnesia where you don't know who you are. Whereas damage to different parts of the brain, you know, you might even get symptoms that look like Parkinson's, or you get some of these diseases that actually uh, impair motor functions in general. So we do think that there is a little bit of a non-overlap between those two, which is why you can get this dissociation of Matt Damon not knowing who he is. And yet, you know, he can perform all of the martial arts that he does in the movie. Well, just to sort of uh, uh, fact check one one thing here that's standing out is maybe different to me. Would languages be in that same category? Because he also seems to remember multiple languages. Yeah, exactly. So th yeah. that's another that those are through other 
parts right. of the brain. We can call them brain regions or more, like lately we've been calling them brain circuits, which are basically just multiple areas connected to each other in the brain. And we think that the language circuits of the brain somewhat different than those that enable us being able to recall our personal memories, which those circuits we think are also different than those that enable us to be able to you know, run a mile without really getting gassed or anything like that. So that's the part where I think it's actually pretty realistic in that sense that he can remember multiple languages or remember how to do these uh, motor functions, but not remember who he is. And we have examples of this in in real life, like uh, plenty of patients who either through some kind of accident or through some surgery, for instance, lose their capacity to do one of these functions, such as being able to either form new memories or recall memories of their past, but they can still play the piano and they can still ride a bike and they can still talk English and they still recognize who their wife is and the works. So we do get these kinds of real life examples that occur as well. The scene that you keep referring to, the scene where he's listing uh, everything that he's thinking, you know, everything that he knows uh, once he enters the diner, that specifically made me wonder, made me write down the question, did Matt Damon get this part because of Goodwill Hunting? Because it reminded me of that famous Goodwill Hunting scene where he's doing the, uh, you've been reading Gordon Wood, but you forgot about Vickis. It's like, he, there's several sequences <laughs> in this movie where he's list, listing things he knows, and he's very good at that. You can tell he's practiced at the Oh, for school. sure. I mean, this is maybe where yeah. Matt Damon was maybe typecast here because, you know, his character in like The Martian or in Goodwill Hunting, uh, even in like The Departed uh, or in The Born Identity, you could imagine the producers and directors being like, all right, Matt, just just be yourself in this scene. Like, just don't act, just be yourself. And then it comes across there because you, that's that's exactly the common denominator, I think, that can exist across these movies is that the personality type tends to be somewhat similar, or at least the, char- the character portrayal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I love hero. With, with this guy, amnesia looked so good on him. It was like no part of his personality <laughs> could, could be bad because he was technically just a sensitive doof. I don't know what, the, I don't know. I don't know why I could do all all this stuff, you know, he was just so likable. Yeah, it is interesting to see Amnesia, in a sense, glorified on the big screen, right? Because you could imagine the inner teenager in us being like, oh, I want to not know who I am and yet be able to kick ass like at, <laughs> like at the drop of a hat. <laughs> yeah, I want to save a girl's life and tell her I don't know what my name is. I was actually going to ask in terms of your expertise uh, with people with Amnesia, is it often a thing that people that suffer from it become better or in some way improved people because through the experience? It's a fantastic question. And, you know, unfortunately, like what we tend to see is that, you know, one of the reasons why we think memory is so important is because it's the thing that really threads and unifies our overall sense of being. So without it, we kind of have a little bit of a broken identity. So unfortunately, in cases of amnesia or severe amnesia, uh, it can become really debilitating in this case. Like it's, it can become very uh, impairing. So even like in the movie Memento, for instance, like you can, you can kind of see how the character here is just like basically kind of literally shattered throughout the movie uh, personality-wise. So, you know, usually it's not like a whack-a-mole effect where you have amnesia for one thing, but then you get these superpowers and become better in different parts of life. It's like, for the most part, it, it does become actually pretty pretty socially debilitating, which is why, um, and personally debilitating as well, which is why it's one of these things that it's still a great mystery as to why it occurs and how to try to fix it. But at least that's something that I think modern neuroscience can take rather seriously. 
So this should be called the broken identity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a better name. Okay, I think we can change that. Um, I just wanted to bring up, this is completely non-science related at all, but um, there's a part where they are activating the other assassins to go get Jason Bourne. <laughs> but they're like very quickly going through this like computer graphic sequence. Mm -hmm. And one of them... <laughs> One of mm -hmm. the names of the assassins is Chimp, C-H-I-M-P. <laughs> like that's his whole name. And then it says next to it, code name. So that's not his code name. That's his name, that's Chimp. His name. And the code name is Professor. Oh my goodness. Oh, that was, uh, that was Clive Owen. The Professor. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So his name is not Chip. It's Chimp. <laughs> I think my favorite of the other assassins introductions was the guy. He's the last guy you see. He's the guy you end up uh, who ends up killing Chris Cooper. When mm -hmm. when you see him lying in his bed with his gun on the bedside table next to him, <laughs> and, and and like a profile next to that, and he's just looking up, uh, waiting for the phone to ring. <laughs> I, I loved that. He's essentially just a human screensaver waiting to kill. I was <laughs> yeah. very into that intro to that character. <laughs> they couldn't find anything for him to yeah, be doing. Right. They couldn't make him like be cooking or like reading. <laughs> when do I kill? Yeah, yeah when yeah. do I kill? What time is it? Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of these assassins, I also really, really had to mention that the first assassin and and you know, all of these guys are supposed to be like kind of born level, right? They're all like mm -hmm. super pros that are trained by top whatever black ops military. Mm -hmm. And this guy chooses to via rope crash in through a window <laughs> with a machine gun already firing i mean it's like it's just it's like yeah. some of those videos of like you know videos out of the army or cops that are like they go in and like bust through the door with this big piece of metal and then like the other person just like checks the doorknob and it was unlocked the whole time and you could just do it that way like it's just <laughs> there's a lot of more mundane yeah. ways of breaking into an apartment. that same yeah. guy exits the same way he runs right. through the glass window i like even for killing himself there's easier ways there's also i wonder I, I, this about a bunch yourself? of yeah yeah about a bunch of hollywood movies i've yeah. always wondered this where like you see this in The Born Identity, basically every other Mission Impossible movie, any action movie where like the hero is running, running, there's no escape and they just like jump through the window. I'm like, are these windows just made out of like cardboard? Like I feel like if you really <laughs> ran full speed ahead against like a window in like a building, like you're not breaking through that thing. Like these things are pretty strong. <laughs> yeah. I mean well, the the key is, Steve, just so you're when you're doing it next time, you need to be actively firing a machine gun when you oh, get right. into the window. <laughs> right, right. I, yeah, I'm with you on that first one because he's swinging, he's got his combat boots out in front. But the second one he literally runs into like with his face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just could not understand why he would do that, the the entrance or the exit, because no. it's reported later that he's dead. Well, and it's, there's nothing so. there's nothing given to us that explains it anywhere in the movie. Like even uh, like you get to you get to uh, Clive Owen after um, uh, uh, Jason shoots him in the field and he and he gives that little speech about like, look what they make us give up. And that doesn't explain anything either. Like, it, you're really just like, well, okay, well, why, why though? Why did you do this? Like, and also, why is your personality different now? Because the whole movie, you were this stone cold, I get orders, I kill people, and then we're supposed to feel something. Like, I, I was, I definitely felt like they gave the short end of the stick as far as like explaining where these people come from and how they're activated. I, I totally agree with you as far as like, I didn't know what was really going on at the end of the movie. I couldn't even tell if Jason Bourne remembered 
stuff about his life. Like clearly he remembers this stuff on the boat, not pulling the trigger because he saw the guy with his family. But I don't know what else he knows, if he knows anything else about his life now. And then I think the Clive Owen thing was was more them saying, once you're in, you can't get out. It's like a gang almost, you know, like for whatever right. reason, they got suckered into this business and now they're just kind of screwed. But again, and not to harp on this, because I know we can get into a lot of memory, important information here, but that scene with the guy coming in the window and then jumping out and killing himself was completely just out of nowhere to me. I couldn't imagine Matt Damon's character coming up with a plan like that. <laughs> Agreed. Right. The only move here is <laughs> run straight out the window onto the street. That would be yeah. really funny to watch him tell Marie to do that with him. Come on, we gotta, we gotta <laughs> run headfirst into that window. Come on, let's go. What? Wait, let's think about this yeah. for a second. What are you talking about? Your, your brain really is messed up. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go, back to the show about science. I wanted to say a couple things just in relation. So the scene where he remembers not killing the guy because of the family. Very, I don't remember that from the first, uh, however many times I saw this before last night. I didn't remember that part, but it's very significant because it specifically shows you, because the whole movie is the question of maybe he's a good person now, but who was he before? Was he an evil person. And I guess that sequence is to show you that, no, he was always good. But I find that to be a less interesting story. You know what I mean? Like, it, and also if he was always good, that just opens up the question of why he was okay with killing a million people before that. Right. Yeah. You that's know? what I was going to say is like, even yeah. if you feel bad killing somebody in front of their family, that means that if his family just wasn't around at that time, he would have killed that guy. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing I wanted to say is that Treadstone, which is the organization, I guess, that uh, uh, grows or whatever these killers and, and puts them out for hire. Uh, I realized that their business model uh, for as odd of a business that it is, is pretty perfect. And they really got a bad break on this one because <laughs> if this one agent had died in the field and not gotten amnesia, forgotten who he was, but retained every single special skill enough to that he could hunt them down and really bring the trouble to their door. Like they'd be fine. They'd be totally fine. And it's like a one in a million shot that this happened. It's crazy. I never thought about that before. Yeah, true. I feel for yeah. Treadstone. Good yeah. call. Uh, it's not it's not often you get a perfectly run government organization. <laughs> Is it the government or are they I, I didn't feel that was clear either. It's like, yeah, some like shadow part of the government, I feel like. Yeah, it's almost like, Who's the, government? like the the like the deep NSA, right? It's like it's like when Prism came out of the NSA, basically like the really shady stuff happening like under like or behind the scenes to keep the fabric of society intact. So yeah, basically some like some aspect of the US government that we're not supposed to know anything about, but they're the ones really saving the world behind the scenes. Yeah, and doing it very do well. This. I miss how many movies used to be involve a room full of guys following one guy on a bunch of monitors <laughs> <laughs> and, and like speaking across the room to each other. Like it, it wouldn't even make sense in terms of a movie today because everybody would be connected online. But there was so much of that. And I think that I remember that being all of these movies, all these Bourne movies are that. Yeah, there was a, a lot of really funny scenes of, yeah, the like, whatever director guy just yelling instructions to people and like, do it now. We need it now. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah. And then just like insert shots of people typing and shit. Yeah. Well, and I love the sparse, the sparseness of the office they were in. 
it looked like a basement. They were just like in a, <laughs> yeah. in a basement full of the old computers from last year or something. It was like, yeah, it's like you're a treadstone. Like you're supposed to like you can literally like you can engineer human psyche in this case. And you're first of all, you're in a basement. And then what's hilarious in these scenes, too, it's like whenever they're barking <laughs> orders and like you start seeing like code appear on the screen, you're like, this is just garbage. Like they're, they're literally just typing in random letters and numbers. <laughs> and then that's supposed to be like the signal that sends like, I don't know, that, yeah. that basically is the decision to go kill Jason Bourne. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. I love all that stuff, man. I want more. It's just, I don't know. It makes me laugh to just see computer graphics stuff. Like, I guess because you don't think it's going to be like outdated but now this movie is 18 years ago so now when you see like the cool computer graphics of 2002 it looks insane i am very curious to see the new one that because he did one like a year ago or two years ago just called jason Bourne, and i want to see to what extent the tech is updated for believability's sake in in the modern age yeah and i don't think that's his name right don't we find out one of the other ones that's not even his frigging name oh, i don't I think remember. so yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, they, yeah um yeah i think julia styles character or something lets him know his real name or something like that yeah he does he does figure out that jason Bourne was just his his code name his real name is like bob or something boring right yeah or david or something like i remember just being like a huge twist moment and it's and i don't care i don't care what his name I, we <laughs> yeah. never knew if that was his name i we don't know his name yeah um okay i have to mention that since we're just talking about the movie at this point that walter goggins is in this oh, movie and has oh. a really fantastic monologue yeah i was thrilled to see him yeah he's oh. wearing like uh suspenders and he's like talking about the girl who I can't, I can't remember her name now, but I just, I love that scene. I thought that was so great. Um, one thing that I thought was fun to notice was first of all, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I generally speaking, think of Matt Damon as a pretty good looking guy, but I forgot how, oh, yeah. how handsome he was as a young man. I mean like this, this vintage Damon, really something to behold. Whereas Young Clive Owen, much worse looking than current Clive <laughs> Ooh, Owen. That would be that interesting. Would, yeah, that was my takeaway. He looked weird and lumpy as a young man. <laughs> <laughs> weird and lumpy. <laughs> Steve, is that your uh, professional uh, take? Your yeah, I, take that's actually that? that's actually my biography and all my dating profiles is weird and lumpy. <laughs> <laughs> You're into weird and lumpy men, uh, much yeah. like young Clive Owen. Um, Okay, before we get back into info science land, I did read on your website, Steve, that you love The Wire, that that's your favorite show. And I stopped at season two of The Wire like a year or two ago. Because they, I don't know, it was like they got into like the docs, and I lost interest somehow in the whole docs Mm -hmm. investigation. So I wanted you to Pitch me why I should keep going, and then I wanted Paul's take. I've, I don't know if we've ever talked about The Wire, Paul. Oh, I can't wait. So it's basically like it's kind of the the nitty gritty action of um, of Breaking Bad, except it's it's not as slow of a burn um, with a lot of like the story development of like Better Call Saul, which is like a lot more pensive and it takes a while to really like you know really dig your teeth into it. And I think that with The Wire, it's like basically from from season one on, there's not really, it didn't feel like that much of a, a slow buildup. It's like, there's always something on the line. It always feels like very gritty and it always feels like you're kind of on the streets with the characters as well. And I mean, especially like in the subsequent seasons, you're just kind of, you're, it almost feels Game of Thronesy except real life where you're invested in so many characters and you're like, I just have no idea who's going to live or die because the reality, unfortunate reality of 
you know, a lot of crime and stuff that can happen in the real world is that there is that uncertainty of life and death that really can be just right around the corner. And I think that it's that kind of edge in your seat, no idea what's going to happen each episode and to each character that maybe was even developed for either multiple episodes or seasons really that, that really kept me going. So yeah, maybe, I think maybe that's a way where it's like, it's Game of Thrones minus the last season meets like the best parts of Breaking Bad meets the storytelling of Better Call Saul. Wow. A, oh, a wow. sterling <laughs> review of The Wire, a recommendation there. If you guys are bored, uh, definitely watch The Wire. Is there a dip in season two? That, like, or am I just uh, uh, it, stupid? No, there is. There is. If there, you don't, there totally is yeah. a dip. Yeah, I have heard of this before. The season two uh, fatigue or whatever you want to call it. The I, I believe that season two is the it's sort of an odd season that it does sort of make or break some people's viewing experiences. I am uh, I think of uh, season two is under uh, misunderstood and underappreciated. However, uh, I, I am a fan. I, I personally, I'm just a big fan of the Frank Zabotka character and his troublesome son, Ziggy. But Regardless, I, the the one thing I will say that I think is telling about how viewers and therefore the creators feel about season two is the uh, one unique aspect of The Wire is that every season introduces you to a new aspect of the city of Baltimore and you're following mm -hmm. like a new, uh, you know, a new, you know, business or organization or, or uh uh, uh, in, in season three, they add, uh, a, uh, political candidate storyline. And so you sort of get a, a look at the government and how that's run. So the, as the show goes on, you just build more and more and more of this world and you, you not only get these new characters, but you retain them. So by the end of the show, mm. no matter how many you've lost, you now have, all these new casts of characters, you have this enormous cast by the end, all of whom you're following uh, down different story threads. But the one story thread that they do not keep is the docs. So I think. Oh, interesting. Yes, I think we're that. We're aware of it. Yes, uh, the people just sort of didn't retain interest in that story because it's unrelated to the major story. Whereas when you get back to season three, they jump right back into Stringer Bell and Avon Barksdale, and it and it's sort of like. It, it it ratchets the main story up quite a bit. So I definitely, I would recommend sticking okay. in. It's All yeah. right, well, I will watch The Wire and, you know, we'll probably do an episode about it at some point about <laughs> uh, Baltimore police, the, the science <laughs> of gunfire. I don't know. We'll figure it out. So uh, a couple other questions here. I wanted to ask about, and I, and I kind of do this whenever we have an expert in neuroscience, because I'm, I'm fascinated with memory, as I'm sure you are as well, clearly. And I hate when I can't remember certain things, um, mm -hmm. you know, small things or big things, honestly, it just bothers me. And I feel frustrated by it. And so I'm, I'm constantly trying to improve my memory. And so that's kind of one of my staple questions for experts like you. Do you do things every day that help you? Uh, like I've, I've talked to some people before who said that they make less decisions per day, you know, so, you know, their, their food is done for the week or, or they're wearing the same things or, you know, that, that could help them or putting things in the same place, you know. Know, like my keys are always in this mm -hmm. location so i don't need to think about where did i put my keys uh, so yeah have any advice on that front yeah i think um it's a couple of things and it's kind of an answer that nobody really likes because they're the hardest things to do but as far as being able to either improve memory or have a good memory or if anything prevent memory decline and this applies not just to memory but to like cardiovascular disorders and, and like mental health and the works like basically everything that is 
that can exist in a human body. Like we don't really, we don't have any silver bullets for these other than we know that like aerobic and anaerobic exercise is a really good thing. And getting a good night's sleep routinely is a really good thing. Having a good, a healthy diet is a good thing. And then having some kind of like social enrichment or any kind of like interactions with the world or whether it's society or whether it's, you know, whatever habits that you have or extracurriculars that you have. But basically between sleep and exercise and diet and leaving, living some kind of an enriched lifestyle, that, that, that kind of cocktail seems to be this recipe for at least like mitigating cognitive decline uh, or memory decline, as well as, again, like everything else that can exist in the body from cardiovascular disorders to mental health to the works. But that's just basically more of a, you know, it's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach by any means, but those seem to be the things that r- routinely pop up over and over again when it comes to trying to maintain like a healthy cognitive state. Awesome. What about coffee? You drink coffee? Oh, I love coffee. I feel like it was um, it was my sophomore year in college when I was pulling an all-nighter for studying for organic chemistry. And I was like, all right, like I, I, never, I was never a coffee drinker. And I was like, you know what? Screw it. Like all my friends swear by it. And then I had it and I was just like, where the hell has this been my entire life? Like, why did nobody tell me about Starbucks? And <laughs> since then, it was just all downhill. <laughs> what are you at right now? How many coffees are we talking about per day? Uh, I limit myself to two cups. So I usually try to nurse two cups throughout the day. Um, and that usually seems to be enough. Like sometimes, you know, my the real kick that I try to get is if I can get in a morning jog and then right when you're hitting the runner's high afterwards, uh, if you down a cup of coffee, then it's like a little bit of a eu- euphoric feeling. Um, but obviously that's a lot, it's a lot tougher these days, but it is, it is something that I try to do routinely where, um, if you can time the post run coffee, then you start the day feeling fantastic. Man, I've, that's a great tip. I've never tried that. I typically will have like a cup while I'm like getting ready. And then I I do try to get a workout in, in the morning, but, but yeah, typically I'll have coffee beforehand. So now I'm going to, I'm going to try that. That's cool. Paul, (laughs) what's, what's your coffee intake? Uh, I, yeah, I would say, uh, I'm a two a dayer. Uh, I used to, and I think that this is so crazy now. I used to prefer tea and I do still like tea, but it's, I think, uh, it was with my girlfriend that somewhere along the line in the last few years, I just started, uh, enjoying coffee for the flavor and like not it's never been something that i necessarily felt like i needed caffeine wise it's just like i now think of it as this wonderful luxury you know that i can have and that can taste so good and i i i have an issue and maybe you already know this about me ethan I, i have a bit of an issue with drinking cold drinks too fast uh like exclusively fast mm-hmm. so a hot beverage uh, uh, and its sippability is a real uh, you know it's a it's a treat for me i'm with you on that tenfold we uh three of us have similarities i also do two cups a day and a hot coffee can last me two to three hours i'm not saying it always does but it can i will sip it but you're right if i have a cold brew uh it's done I will I will down it within a minute and a half tops. I'm totally with you on this. My lab makes fun of me for this all the time where when I have a cup of coffee, like I don't I'm not drinking it because I usually drink it like iced coffee, whether it's winter or summer, but like I'm not even drinking it because I enjoy it. I'm just like drinking it because I like need its effects. So I just down the cold brew and I'm like, all right, then it's almost like you're shotgunning a coffee in the morning and then you're good to go. Yeah, absolutely. And I also guess I've become somewhat of a snob now. I have like the whole pour over Chemex set up here at home. And I just, <laughs> I, compared to tea, like you said, Paul, it's just not even close, man. I just love the, the whole uh, tradition or like the, the you know, 
the setup of like doing it in the morning and the smell and the taste, it's it's euphoric for sure. Um, so, you know, if you're out there and you roast beans, just feel free to send them to me, uh, email me, I'll send you my address. <laughs> That's cool. Finally, just had to ask, and, and usually this goes almost nowhere, but maybe you have some sort of opinion on it. The whole nootropics craze, which I guess has mm -hmm. something to do with Born Identity because he has these ridiculous memorization abilities, like you said, where he can just look at six license plates and then remember them 20 minutes later talking in a diner. And I don't know, people claim to swear by these things. So is that something you think is interesting or is that just a hoax? How do you feel about nootropics? Yeah, so uh, there's a, a yes and no here. So it's like nootropics are kind of like they try to be steroids for the brain right where it's like the your brain muscle can flex more and more and with nootropics you can yeah you can have incredible memory or incredible cognition or these things and now like i have no doubt that there can be some cognitive enhancing chemicals out there i mean it's like all you need to do is have a cup of coffee in the morning and you realize how much slightly or how much more alert you actually might be or um this can be similar for um, people, for instance, who are prescribed Adderall and like how that how that makes them feel to be able to focus and so on. So I have no doubt that there is like these these kinds of uh, either drugs or chemicals that exist that can temporarily enhance our vigilance or so on. The problem there's two problems here is that one is that um, most like most drugs can be very addictive and that's going to come with a thousand and one side effects because that drug wasn't designed to make you a genius it was designed to try to alleviate some kind of symptoms such as like the inability to focus for prolonged periods of time and now the other part um, you know it's kind of like in the movie Limitless too where it's like Bradley Cooper takes his NZT pill and it's like oh you can unlock all the different corners of your brain and you can basically be this savant who can write books and memorize or learn to play the piano in a day and memorize books and so on. Um, now, the thing is that this is kind of like one of those, you know, those ads of like, oh, what would happen if you can unlock 99% of your brain at the same time? And what could you do as a result? And like the the sobering reality is that if you were to take a drug that were to unlock 99% of your brain at the exact same time, but what happened is that you would have the most massive seizure known to mankind. Like that's literally the <laughs> definition. <laughs> like literally the definition of a seizure is an overabundance of neural activity. So a drug that claims to do that is going to be a drug that just gives you epilepsy, which is not a good thing. So hmm. I think that in this case, it's like, you know, there, there are certain elements of nootropics that it has going for it. Like there are, again, like whether it's the amphetamines or Adderalls or things like that, which are, it can be good when prescribed and when, when actually prescribed in this case responsibly. Um, on the other hand, like the idea of unlocking different corners of your brain, it's like, you know, people who take uh, LSD or MDMA or virtually any one of these drugs will say like, yeah, I had this realization. It's like, yeah, but you were also a blob melting into the grass on the side of like the river. So it's like the, the side effects <laughs> there are very real. <laughs> so it's like the side effects there are very, are very real as well. So I think for now it's a little bit more fiction than fact um, in terms of being able to, to develop these kinds of drugs. But, you know, but who knows, right? We also, on the flip side, like to kind of counter argue myself, it's like we have certain bionics and certain prosthetic limbs that can, in certain senses, outperform our current limbs. And like, you know, we can, ex we can extend bionic limbs or have prostheses that have 12 computers on them and can do these amazing, amazing feats of like biomechanical amazingness. So maybe one day we'll have that for the brain, right? But for now, um, for now, the brain is still, I don't know, still a little bit, a little bit smarter in this case. 
Well, I hope that you are on the case and that one day soon you'll be emailing me, letting me know that you can update my brain um, to make me <laughs> smarter and have a better memory and a better host for everyone listening. But um, until then, I want to thank you both for joining me on the pod. I hope you had fun. I had a great time talking to you and, uh, and hope to have both of you back. Awesome. Thank you so much. Oh, it would be a thrill. I can't wait. Always a thrill, Paul. Steve, it's a new thrill, but I'm sure it will be repeated. And uh, maybe, I mean, I was going to say we could do Born Identity 2 or 3, whatever the hell they're called, but I just remember it being so shaky and I like the camera <laughs> was so shaky. So I don't even know if I want to rewatch those, not to be rude to the creators. <laughs> we could skip ahead to five and see where he's at now. You know, just catch up with okay, porn. Okay, that would be fun. 20 years down the road. Yeah. I'd be down. Yeah, yeah. That, that would be I'd my love. suggestion. Great. Okay, so we'll uh, reconvene for Born Identity 5, the Bornist Identity, and uh, <laughs> and read the synopsis of 2 through 4. <laughs> Sounds great. All right. Thank you both. Have a good day. Stay safe. You too, bud. All right. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Bye. Bad Science is hosted and produced by me, Ethan Edinburgh. Our associate producer is Emily Felt. Our engineer is Jeremy Schmidt. Bad Science is edited by Lucas Bollinger, and our social media is managed by Blue Whale Media. Shout out to EJ and Kate. I love you. Don't tell my girlfriend. Follow us on Instagram at Bad Science Pod. If there's a movie you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, feel free to email at badscienceatseeker.com. That's badscienceatseeker.com. And please leave us an iTunes review. Give us five stars. I sound like an Uber driver. But it does help. It makes sure people know about the podcast, which we really appreciate. Oh, and the executive producer is, um, what is his name? Hold on. I know his, I must know his name. I've known him for many, many years. And it's, and it's Brandon... Blush, Blushki. It's Brandon Blushki. Um, oh, what's this? Sorry, I'm being handed a card. Oh, Brett Kushner. That's right. <laughs> Sorry. Our executive producer is Brett Kushner. Thanks for listening. Bye.